Welcome to the show today. My name's Elijah, and I'm here with Michael Berdour. He's in studio, and we're going to be discussing some of the details of his life. He's going to talk to us about the new age and charismatic Christianity, and I'm super excited to have him here. Uh, Michael, you've been a great friend, a great mentor of mine, and I'm glad to have you on the show. No, I've been. it's been such a joy to walk with you over the last few years and to just see what God's done in your life. I mean, I'm amazed. So it's excellent to be here. Yeah. So, Michael, let's go back to when you were younger. Um, tell us what your life was like um, before you met Christ. Wow. Well, that's a big one. I was raised in San Francisco by hippie parents. Okay, so if you can get an idea of this, my dad and mom first moved there in the 60s, early 60s, to kind of get away from Western tradition or Midwestern traditional reality. My dad was an artist, my mom was an aspiring artist. We moved to the city and he was involved in the beatnik scene. Okay, but then when 1967 happened in the summer of love, that's when everything went crazy. And of course, all my parents got into drugs. They introduced me to marijuana and then later to LSD. I was involved in this whole thing, but my mom actually was attracted to the occult. Mm-hmm. And so she took a job as the assistant manager of what was called uh, the Mystic Eye Bookstore on Broadway Street in San Francisco. And uh, she began to actually train to read people's tarot cards, to do uh, astrology charts and those kinds of things. So I was raised around all of that input. My mom and dad were separated. We were living with another guy, and we started a commune in San Francisco in the Mission District. And we had generally, you know, six to eight people living with us at any given time. Some were draft dodgers, protesters, revolutionaries, guru followers. So we had all this input. And probably during my, maybe from 13 till I came to Christ at 17, I probably took LSD about 300 times. Okay, wow. <laughs> My first uh, spiritual book that I read was by D.T. Suzuki, Zen, Zen Buddhism, okay? Mm-hmm. That was my initial exposure. I read, you know, uh, Ram Das, Be Here Now, Autobiography of a Yogi from Paramahansa Yogananda. I was immersed in Eastern philosophy. I started doing yoga at an early age, started doing Chai Chi. So I was very much in the early stages of that. I was involved in, you know, experimentation with uh, astral projection, things like that. So it was a different lifestyle, let's put Mm -hmm. it that way, you know. What was your mindset about that back then? Gosh, I had I had gone to church once in my whole life. Mm-hmm. And so I had no context for Jesus. I was told by my parents that the scripture was actually written by an evil king to control the masses. So I had no foundation at all. So I had met a few Jesus freaks during the the later 60s on the streets, and they would share the gospel. I would argue with them. But I had no framework. So this seemed like the most enlightened spiritual path possible mm-hmm. was the new age. Mm-hmm. And so what were some of your spiritual experiences during that time? Wow. I had a lot of different sort of revelations, visions. I mean, certainly being stoned on LSD, your mind does this amazing thing where I never had a bad experience, Mm -hmm. but it was always these experiences that were almost revelatory, where you kind of go down these channels and you're thinking to different conclusions, and maybe they weren't as profound to the person listening to you, but they were way profound (laughs) to you when you were doing that. But um, actually, what was interesting is... When I was around 17, right before I came to Christ, I actually uh, was working closely with a guy who was uh, getting his PhD in parapsychology. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so we started, we built a team together and started traveling around the United States. Okay. So we went to the Humanistic Psychology Convention in, in uh, New Orleans, and we provided all the entertainment for them. Okay. Then we went up and instructed a bunch of uh, guys from the, actually the president and vice presidents of the YMCA in how to do yoga, meditation, and Tai Chi and other kinds of supernatural sort of uh, mystical experiences. But then we had this other really weird experience. We picked up a woman who was a channel. Mm-hmm. And she was channeling an entity named Seth. Mm-hmm. Now, if you know anything about the New Age, you know the Seth material. The Seth material was a book written by a woman named Jane Roberts. She wrote, I think, seven or eight books, automatic writing, you know, revelations from the this particular entity, which now I would consider to be some sort of demonic principality. But at the time, we thought, oh, this is cool because she could read people's uh, stories. She could, uh, she had prophetic kind of revelation over people. But there was one particular moment where we were driving across Canada. She joined our team for a season and we ran out of gas. And the entity spoke to her and said, if you guys will meditate right now, I'll turn your meditation energy into gasoline. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we had tried to start the car four or five times. We gave up, just began to meditate. And then about 10 minutes later, he turned over the engine. We ran for another 25 miles. Oh, wow. The engine stopped when we ran into into the uh, gas station. That was one. And then a little bit later, we were in Montreal and... uh, and she actually had us sit down with the Ouija board. Mm-hmm. Um, I was with th- this woman who I knew it had grand mal seizures. I knew that, you know, her situation. And uh, as we began to do it, it actually worked. I mean, I was really surprised, but it kept forcing me off the table. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, that's cool. And I don't want to be on this thing anyway. And then my, the, the girl went ahead and, and uh, actually they did a reading of her. And she actually experienced a season where she'd never had grand mal seizures, even though she was off medication, Mm -hmm. which never happened for her. And so we saw what I would consider to be at least some kind of a demonic healing at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit later, of course, she reverted and had the experience again. And it was a a terrible, the the grand mal seizures came back even more severe than ever. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there was these kinds of experiences in my early days, you know, my, my late teens, and, uh, and then I came to Christ, uh, you know, and that's a long story by itself. But at that point, I didn't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, had these experiences that were clearly supernatural. And then I also had this experience now with Christ, and I didn't really know how to process it. Mm-hmm. So we can explore that a little bit more if you want well, to. Well, there, there's lots of <clears throat> questions. Before, I, we'll get to your testimony and how Christ saved you in a moment. Um, and so... Were you into Subud at this time? Could you explain what that is? Yeah, what happened was, again, you know, I started expanding my understanding of New Age thought. So I started Mm -hmm. going from basic Buddhism to Hinduism and then to Sufi. Mm -hmm. And Sufi was basically mystical Islam. And I also dipped a little bit into Kabbalah, which Kabbalah, which some people call it, uh, which is more mystical Judaism. So I started kind of exploring these other things, different authors I was reading, like Pir uh, Valyat Inyar Khan and a few others, trying to understand the, the relationship between these different religious beliefs operating under the assumption that all roads led to Rome. Right. You know, Were you but then, monotheistic at this time? Yeah, mm, kind of. I mean, I, I had a primary understanding of the great spirit. Right. Okay. But beyond that, I also knew that there were other entities. I didn't, wouldn't call them gods, but I, I would say I was monotheistic, but I also believe that there were other, other forces at work. 
Okay. okay? But then um, a friend introduced me to this idea of subud. Now, subud um, is ostensibly the infilling of the Holy Spirit for Muslims. That's what it was introduced as. A man in, in Indonesia actually received this experience. He began to speak in other tongues. He began to sort of what they call dancing in the spirit. And uh, it took off. And I guess 100,000 people kind of had this experience. I came in a little bit later. They have you wait outside what's called the Ladihan Hall, and you just listen to what's going on for about six months. And then after that, um, they actually bring you in, and they pray over you, and then you have this experience. Now, they claim not to be doctrinally based. They don't claim to be for Muslims only. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact... Many, many friends of mine were either Catholics or some kind of traditional uh, Christian faith, and they had this experience. But then what was interesting is a fair percentage of them during this experience would have some kind of revelation about Jesus and realize that the experience wasn't from the Lord, and they would actually leave the organization. Right. So I don't even know how to understand that. That's something similar happened to me because I, I was in this experience for a season, spoke in tongues, which I later renounced. Mm -hmm. the tongue that I had received in that event. But at the same time, it was confusing to me because, again, I was dabbling in so many things mm -hmm. that now that I was exclusively committed to Jesus, I had a lot of work to do to kind of unravel mm -hmm. my thinking. And we want to be clear, we're not <clears throat> saying Subud is a infilling of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. It's just what they would call it. Right. Um, and, you know, the Holy Spirit leads us to holiness. It always points to Christ. Right. Um, or he always points to Christ. So you're, you're into Subud at this time. And then <laughs> how do you meet Jesus? Wow. Well, I, I started hitchhiking around the nation and, okay. and into Canada and, and across Mexico. And I was like long-haired kid. I, was, I started traveling at 15, hitchhiking, and uh, I didn't have a sleeping bag. I just had a cape, like a Gandalf cape. And I had a staff, and I was, I was like that guy, you know, yeah. and sleeping under, you know, freeway over, overpasses and things like that. Anyway, so I started meeting Christians because that was a typical way to witness to a, sure. a person at that time was pick them up and you have a captive audience. And so anyway, so I just learned how to battle with Christians. And I, I felt like my, my spirituality was so much more superior to their basic, you know, Neanderthal Christian, you know, thought process. So, but on one particular day, I had six rides in a row with believers. Oh, wow. And I got a little suspicious. I remember getting out of the car and saying, oh, great spirit, you know, are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> and uh, because I realized, you know, this idea of coincidence wasn't coincidence. And so, anyway, the next car that pulled up was this amazing woman who was the, the infamous Jesus freak in the region. Her name was Sabina Ball. She has a great testimony that you can actually access if you look her up online. Uh, she was from Germany originally. She came to the United States, uh, was involved in the New Age, and then Jesus touched her. And she got saved, started a commune, Christian commune. And uh, she picked me up hitchhiking. She drove me for 25 miles. And then when we were getting out of the car, she said, well, would you like to pray with me? And I just felt my heart yield. And I, I prayed with her mm -hmm. a simple prayer. And then after that, Jesus started to reveal himself to me. Mm -hmm. And so were you presented the gospel before this or? I was, but I battled it every time. Sure. I mean, I just, the whole notion of, you know, 
first of all, God becoming flesh, the second notion of God going to the cross to die for humanity. Sure. I didn't know that I was a sinner at the time. I mean, I, I had so embraced the New Age philosophy that, yeah, I made mistakes, but think of myself as having sinned against the universe or against God was just a foreign thought, you know. Did you see yourself as a God at this time? Or, I mean, that's a common thought. There was some of that thought in the world I was in. I mean, I, I never quite embraced that idea, although I did understand the teaching of the Ascended Masters, mm -hmm. you know, that supposedly they lived in Mount Shasta, you know. And, right, and, uh, right, 60 you know, miles. Exactly, go, go yeah. And so, and, and I also understood the, the I was basically a believer in reincarnation. So I do believe that we ascended to a level of what we would call avatar or to a place of ascended uh, understanding, nirvana. And so I was in pursuit of that outcome. I felt like I could achieve that in this life. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think I really would have thought of myself as God in a pantheistic sense, nor as God in, in a, you know, in a sense of, uh, of, um, that I had ascended to that level yet. Okay. You know? Okay. So anyway. On yeah. your path to becoming one. It's, it's uh, weird, you know, so. And, and so you have this experience. Sabina prays with you. Um, and you said Jesus started revealing himself to you. What do you mean by that? Well, I had an experience about three or four days later. Um, it was within a couple of weeks. But I was doing my morning meditation. And I was sitting on my bed and kind of looking out over this plate glass window, and and uh, I had a vision. And in the vision, I, I and again, I don't know what this means, but I saw three silhouettes, and I heard a voice. And the voice said, are you ready yet? And I knew what they were talking about. See, the spirituality that I was involved in, that I was very dedicated to, I mean, I was fasting usually 10 days a month. I mean, I'd fast at, at least, you know, uh, two days every week, and then on the, on the full moon, I'd fast for, for three full days. You know, I was involved in all this, you know, meditation and exercise and, you know, Tai Chi Chuan and all these other things. So for me, but I had this convenient, you know, uh, spirituality, which basically meant I could feel good about myself as a spiritual person, but still sleep around, still do drugs, still live a lifestyle that was completely contrary to even the teachings of Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of this, this double life thing, but feeling good enough about myself in a self-righteous manner. Okay. So that's what I felt like these, this voice meant when it said, are you ready yet? So I looked over my life, I did an inventory, and I just realized what it was saying. Like, you need to really take this seriously. And then uh, I said, no, I'm not ready yet. And then immediately the scene changed and I saw a picture of Jesus on the cross. And he, was, he, he turned and looked at me and he didn't move his lips, but, but I heard a voice that said, <clears throat> he said um, that when you follow me, it'll be to your death. I mean, it was a weird, weird thing because, again, context of death and Jesus dying on the cross was completely foreign to me, except that I just heard about it a, a week or so before. And so here Jesus is bloody. He's, he's looking at me, and this word comes out that I hear in, in, my mind, in, in my mind's ear, when you follow me, it'll be to your death or it'll mean your death. But I realized that it was serious. Like, this, is, this is real. And so I realized, wow, I'm in, I'm in trouble. You know, I need to understand what Jesus is all about. 
Now, at the time, I was reading the Arantia book. I was reading the uh, the uh, Essene Gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. I was, you know, I was uh, involved in a number of other kind of quasi-Christian quotations like the Gospel of Thomas and things like that. Um, so I, ha- I had a growing context for Jesus, but gosh, nothing resembling biblical understanding of Jesus. So it was, but I, but this one revelation just made me understand that this was do or die. This was real. Like, in other words, it's not just something to live for, it's something to die for. And, and that imprinted me and my life started to shift. Like, uh, you know, there was conviction almost every day of give up this, let go of that, stop doing this. And, and I just, you know, again, didn't trust the Bible. So I didn't have any foundation for how to do this. You know, I just was following whatever I felt like the guidance was. And so where do you go from there on your journey? Wow. Well, I was hitchhiking up to a rainbow gathering. I had just attended the healing ceremony for the planet Earth with a bunch of Hopi Indians in, in uh, this was in uh, Vancouver, Washington, uh, Vancouver, BC. Then I hitchhiked down to uh, where I believe the Rainbow Gathering is going to be near Glacier Park in northern Montana. And so in that process, I, I get out of the car and I don't realize it, but I'm actually on an Indian reservation, a Blackfoot Indian reservation. I walk into the general store and there's a guy standing there, a big Indian with long braids and full on Indian gear, like, you know, finger bone necklace and all this stuff. And, uh, and we sort of do that dance at the door, you know, where I, I can't get in and he can't get out. And then all of a sudden he, he just challenges me, say, who are you? What are you doing here? I said, well, I'm looking for the rainbow people. And he said, shh, get in my car. And so I get in the car and he says, my name's Tiny Man Heavy Runner. I mean, I'm not even kidding you. That's what his, his name was. And uh, he said, I'll help you find your friends, but you have to understand the Indians here don't like those hippie people. Okay. So anyway, we drove around, couldn't find them. He said, well, why don't you spend the night at my house, which happened to be a teepee in the middle of nowhere and uh, right up against this you know, small house that was maybe, I don't know, 100 square feet with 20 people living in it with no running water. And I, I spend the night there. And then the next morning I get up and he introduces me to his grandparents and they were followers of Jesus. Hmm. And they had come to the Lord about 40 years earlier in a very amazing way. And uh, so this was where I actually lived with them for six months and was discipled by them. And that was really where I began my actual following of Jesus. Oh, wow. What what happened to the grandparents? Uh, well, they later passed away, but they were... No. Oh, so oh gosh. Well, that's that's a pretty crazy story. So if you you know fasten your seatbelts. Okay. But basically, the guy had been raised in a Catholic mission school, so he was forced to eat soap. He was literally strapped up and beaten mm. by the priests if he did spoke in his native tongue or did anything. And we're talking about him being born at the end of the 1800s. Oh wow. 1895. Wow. Okay. So he was in that early stage when the when the reservations were just being formed. Anyway, so he hated Jesus. So he just began drinking. And in his drinking, it actually affected his body so that his stomach stomach lining was eaten away with this rot gut liquor. And he went to a doctor. The doctor said, you have three weeks to live. And so he said, I'm just going to go to the bar and drink myself to death. So he's in the bar. His wife is next to him. 30 people in the bar. And Jesus appeared on the bar, on a table. And basically spoke to him and said, sober up and follow me. Now, I wouldn't have believed this except I met people who were there and actually saw this vision of Jesus. And so, and then he turned to the wife and said, fast for four days and your husband will be healed. And so by the time I encountered them, they were in their late 70s. This happened when they were in their 40s. 
Okay. And so 30, 40 years of ministry on the reservation. I met people who had been in wheelchairs that were walking. I met people that had been tormented, that were set free. I mean, I met a lot of people. I saw miracles myself during that time that were extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So... And so this conversion happens in your life. Does it change your lifestyle at all, or are you still living the same way <clears throat> Absolutely you did? Absolutely, it did. I mean, I really went through a massive repentance at that time. And that was what was so cool is I began to understand that I was a sinner. I mean, that was something that was foreign to me. I began to understand that Jesus wasn't just the purest water at the highest point on the stream, but he was actually the only way, the way and the, the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. So in that process, I really felt like I had a full conversion. You know, I believe I was born again prior because I believe I had faith enough to be born again, but I don't believe I was anywhere not walking with Jesus at that time. So this is what happened is I began to actually, you know, change my lifestyle working with these guys and the Lord set me free from a bunch of stuff. Actually, when I, when I showed up there, I was on a raw foods Ramadan fast. <laughs> 40 days, you know, only eating between sundowns yeah. and in the morning and then, and then uh, fasting. I mean, I was, I was just so flipped out. Okay. Right. But it was just transformational for me to be around them, especially seeing miracles. I read the whole Bible through in six months while I was, while I was with them. And I began to really think about, okay, this is the truth. And, and that was one of the things that these guys had imprinted on me was that the Bible is the word of God. And uh, in fact, when Jesus had appeared to them in, in a couple of other instances, he actually read to them out of the Bible. So it's like, you know, in other words, really trying to reinforce the fact, even though these guys were largely illiterate, um, the Lord used this as a, a powerful uh, impact in their life. So about six months in, though, they said, wow, we've taken you as far as we can. You need to go get training. You have a calling on your life. You need, you're going to be preaching the gospel. You need to go, go to a Bible school or something. So that's when I came back to the Bay Area, started looking for options of where I could go to receive training so that I could actually serve the Lord. And where'd you end up? <clears throat> well, that's interesting because I looked at a couple of different Bible schools, but I didn't feel like I wanted to sit in a classroom. Um, and then I found this group. Uh, if you look them up on Google for, you know, sort of the Jesus movement era, it's called Lighthouse Ranch. They were in Northern California in Eureka, and they had planted by that time maybe 60 churches. And they were about to plant a church in San Francisco. And so that's what got me is I thought, wow, and they do on-the-job training. So they put you through an intensive training process of both study as well as sort of a character development, uh, what, what would have been called at the time shepherding. But it was it was actually, um, they weren't deep in the shepherding, but but pretty much most movements at that time were affected by that. Our audience isn't going to know what the shepherding <laughs> okay. movement is, so if you could explain well, basic, that. Yeah, basically during the, the Jesus movement where literally hundreds of thousands of young people got saved, uh, there was so little discipline and so little understanding of the Word of God and so forth that there was a group of guys that got together and began to institute what they called shepherding, which was a very intentional form of disciple making, where the pastors or the leaders in a church would actually get in your life, they'd find out all that's going on, they'd challenge you in areas of growth that you need to grow in. Unfortunately, though, this particular movement began to, especially by the second and third generation leaders, began to become very abusive and controlling and manipulative. And, you know, it was just, it was bad. And in many cases, some people got, you know, sort of 
irreversibly hurt by the movement. It wasn't that way for me because I grew up in a house where, you know, my parents said you can sleep with anybody you want as long as you bring them home. Right. You know, they said also that you can take any drug you want as long as you don't shoot it into your veins. So I had no Which are good rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Don't but shoot I had, it in I your had veins. no I had no uh, <laughs> No boundaries in my yeah. life. So for me to go through a season with some very wonderful people where they were really doing that deep inner work with me to get me to a place of alignment, gosh, that was huge for me. Mm -hmm. And so I moved down with them in, in the, the fall of 1977, mm -hmm. September, and we started a ministry house, started taking people off the streets, sharing the gospel with them. We lived with a common purse. So we had, you know, all of our money went into the ministry and we uh, had businesses that we had started to kind of train people. And it was just, it was really early Jesus movement kind of stuff going on at that moment. And so it was pretty fun. Uh, it was like an adventure, but um, it was big. So how did you meet Diane? Gosh. Well, probably about uh, two years into being in the city, now with this group of friends, this, you know, 15 or 20 people that we had started a church with, um, I started meeting with some other leaders, different churches and different pastors and evangelists, because I really felt the need to unify the body of Christ. Now, you got to remember, I'm like 22 years old. Right. I, I'm just like long hair, a little scruffy beard. Like, But I had this vision, the church should be unified. So I went to every pastor and said, let's do a, a, you know, a concert, a worship concert in the park. So we did that. But the last pastor I talked to said, well, I'll do that with you if you go out on the streets with me two weeks later. So we gathered about 80 people. We, we started some street ministry in San Francisco, and uh, that grew. The next year, we actually invited literally, you know, 500 people to come, and they came. So we had some YWAM groups come. Uh, we had done this sort of, I'd done a, a national trip where I met with uh, Jack Hayford, with Keith Green, with uh, David Wilkerson, with all these major leaders around. And again, I got, I'm this punk kid, but I just had this boldness. And so we, we invited all these ministries to come. And Diane was one of them. She was in Youth with a Mission. She heard about what we were doing. And, uh, you know, she was came up, was sleeping on a church floor and, uh, you know, with a bunch of other radical believers. And uh, I made sure she got on my team. <laughs> <laughs> that's, now, that's the again, way to do it. Again, I had come to Christ. I, I hadn't dated at all. Mm -hmm. So I was completely, you know, just completely in a different lifestyle. But uh, the Lord had spoken to me and said, you're going to meet your wife soon. And so I just thought, okay, I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, so we uh, <clears throat> worked together that week doing outreach. And then, uh, and then right after that, uh, I, w I went down to visit her dad a couple weeks later, get his permission to court her. And then within six months, we were married. Oh, wow. And now we have seven kids. So, um, so it's a different ministry style, ministering to people in the new age in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about how do you do that? Because I, I assume even in the 60s, people are just turned off by Christianity yeah. uh, in that city. Yeah. I think there's two aspects that we need to remember, and they're the two aspects I think that are relevant today. One is the aspect of good apologetics, kind of coming from the right place, understanding the relationship of faith to science, faith to new age. How is that transition made? And I can talk about my transition a little bit more because there was a journey. But then with that also the supernatural. 
I believe in a God who's real. I believe in a God who cares, a God who heals. And so there can be times where God will give you supernatural understanding that can actually cut through some of the other stuff, the intellectualism of the new age, the games that are played, even some of the, what I would consider to be false spirituality Mm-hmm. That is in the new age. Uh, I believe that we can actually, in a sense, step through that and really touch people deeply through the gifts of the spirit that God gives us. Well, talk to me about that intellectual journey you went on. Um, when did it start and what were the catalysts along the way? Well, first of all, there was just dissonance. I mean, I had my previous beliefs. I had the, the Bible that I was reading. I couldn't quite reconcile them. Okay. Then I end up on this ranch being trained to come down to San Francisco with this group of people. And I had this weird experience. Okay, there was a great storm. A lot of branches had come down. I was on the cleanup crew. So here I was in the parking lot cleaning up a bunch of garbage. And a guy pulls up in a beautiful convertible. And he gets out and he's Mr. Cool. You know, he's got the cool pants on. He's got a band across his head, you know. And and he introduces himself and says, well... You know, my name is so-and-so, I'm a Buddhist priest, and I I heard you had a spiritual community here, I want to check it out. So I said, sure, I'll take you on a tour. All right, so I I guide him through, and while we're walking up to the men's dormitory, Mm -hmm. he says, well, you know what, I don't don't know if you're open to this, but, but you were with Jesus you know, in a previous incarnation and you were hanging out with him. Oh. And I thought, ooh, interesting. Like this thing got triggered in my heart. Yeah. Like, wow, because I'd been praying for my guru. I had gone to different meetings where I might meet a guru. You know, I'd, I'd been hungry for a spiritual guide. In fact, it had a couple throughout the time. But here I felt like, whoa, this guy's for real. Then we go into the men's dorm and he looks around. And he says, I could never spend the night here. I said, well, why not? And he said, well, because there's tuberculin bacilli here. And he didn't know it, but I knew that somebody had a latent case of tuberculosis. It was one of the guys in the, in the thing. So I thought, wow, this guy is discerning at some level. Okay. But then I think, oh, no, I need to bring him to the elder's house and get, you know, get this guy off the land because he seems to be a little bit more powerful than I'm ready for. So I bring him all the way around, and uh, we couldn't find the leader. And so we're walking back to the car, and he says, you know what? I'd like to invite you to come with me. I feel like you could be my disciple. And that was something I had always kind of wanted was that sort of, you know, the master shows up and the master calls you, you know. Right. And uh, so I started to feel that. And he says, because if you really knew who I was, you would know that I am such and such. He says a name, the avatar for this age. And as soon as I thought that, Matthew 24 went through my brain. If any man says he's the Christ, he's a liar. Right. Okay. And so at that moment, his book, he was holding like a journal or something. His book comes smashing across my face. And he said, you dare mock me? I didn't say anything. I just thought the thought. And he says, I damn you. And then he gets in his car and drives away. I'm shaken. Like, I feel like all of a sudden I've had a confrontation, not just with the difference of belief from the new age to Christ, but really the absolute conflict of those beliefs. Right. Like I finally saw them like, you know, at war with each other. And, and so the elder came up, talked to me. I was able to go into the prayer room and I just spent about two or three hours just really before the Lord, just like renouncing the garbage of my life. All the things that I had previously believed, all the things I dabbled in. I mean, we lived above Satanists where we actually had saw Satan manifest. I mean, we've seen like tons really? of things like that. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were, San Francisco was such a dark place. My mom worked at the only main a, you know, a uh, occult bookstore. It's like we were constantly immersed in all this stuff. 
So I had so much exposure to it throughout my years that I had a lot of shedding to do, a lot of renunciation, a lot of repentance, but I felt like it actually grounded me. And that happened simultaneously, I should say, with reading Mere Christianity. Really? And so that was what was leading you intellectually yeah. at that time. So you're reading C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And what's that doing for you? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know how he did it, but, you know, most of Mere Christianity was was broadcast that he had done during the end of the Second World War or, or right. before the end of the Second World War. But he nailed most of the New Age and the belief systems and the conflict of the belief systems. He nailed them so perfectly you know, and I, I know that there were some New Age influences in the 40s as well, you know, sure. like, like Yogananda or like Blavatsky or some of these other, you know, sort of uh, New Age thinkers. But it, it, it hadn't reached even the, the name Blue, New Age hadn't really come to pass yet. Mm-hmm. But, but every one of my questions, honestly, C.S. Lewis addressed. It was like, you know, just the key questions about the difference between God and, and pantheism, you know, the monotheism, all, the, all these different things. He, he touched them all so well and with such a, a surprising uh, logic hmm. that it was like, whoa, you know, you'd have to kind of read it three or four times to get, oh, that's what it means. Like, why is good good and evil is evil? You know, how do we know that God is not yin and yang? You know, it's like sure. those kinds of things. He addresses them so brilliantly. So well, well that that's interesting. So because I can see charismatic pastors out there saying all you need is a touch for, from the Holy Spirit <laughs> and you don't need this apologetic intellectual life. Yeah. What would you say to that person? Oh gosh, I'd say look out, you know, cuz there is so much first of all, if there wasn't a devil yeah. and there wasn't falsehood and deception, I'd say sure. You know, yeah. if it was only the Holy Spirit and everything else was benign and beautiful, go for it. However, <laughs> there is a devil there, and he is the deceiver. He's, he's you know, he, he's not walking around, you know, he's, a, he's disguised as an angel of light, the scripture says. So we have to understand that because there is evil in the universe and that evil uses deception and lies, he's the father of lies. Therefore, there's no way in the world that we can just tuss, touch, I mean, or, or trust our, our impressions sure. to be the only guide. Now, I believe that Holy Spirit speaks to us. I believe that he is in us if you're a born-again believer. I believe that he's at work to guide us into all truth, as Jesus said in the, in the Upper Room Discourse. It's so true. However, there's a subjective reality that ultimately is, is, is vulnerable without the clear guidance of the Word of God and the guidance of Christian philosophers who have taken the Word of God and now apply it in contrast to the God of this age. Well, let me ask you this. Did you realize there was a devil before you came to Christ? Or did you just think some spirits are bad? They're like people. They do some bad things. They do some good. No, it is interesting because, you know, we we lived in it. I mean, I had seen a lot of evil throughout my life. My dad was a pretty evil guy. was involved in child molestation and things like that. Uh, My stepfather was an ex-con who would beat us mercilessly. So I had seen a lot of evil on that level. But when we finally escaped from my violent stepfather one night at 2 in the morning, uh, we ended up getting an apartment. And our apartment was on the top floor of a three-story apartment. The next floor down, they didn't have any furniture. They just had a pentagram on their living room floor. And we built a friendship with these individuals and we actually had really clear demonic manifestations around our house. Describe so, them. well, you know, 
basically, one night my mom was in the bathtub. There was, I mean, we're talking about a street in San Francisco that's, you know, like a mountain. Okay, our, our apartment was here. The next roof of the next apartment was here. There was somebody she saw who was staring in her bathroom looking at her from this apartment. She screams, and two friends were in the house that were teenagers. They ran up onto the roof, and they saw this man running across the roof, and he disappeared. Mm -hmm. Then a few days later, my mom wakes up with a handprint on her arm, Mm -hmm. okay, of welts and, uh, and rash. And so she doesn't know what it is, but she happens to mention it to the neighbors downstairs. And they say, oh, that's something. And they had a, a title for it. I can't remember what the word was. But they said, yeah, Satan came to you to enlist you. Hmm. And again, I don't know the, how this plays out theologically, but you said no. In other words, you, you rejected Satan as somebody you would follow. And therefore, he left this print on your arm. That was mm. what they told her. Okay, so we had had seen some of that. And then, of course, just you know, through the use of drugs and other things, I had seen other kinds of demonic manifestation. And then, then, then definitely, you know, after I came to Christ, I saw a woman get set free from demons on the reservation, things like that. So, but early on, I had a sense that there was something. I didn't know how to understand it, so I didn't have a biblical framework for the enemy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I knew there was evil, and I knew that there was e- evil personified. Sure. Okay. So, yeah. So I had an awareness of that, but I didn't, I wouldn't have automatically thought, oh, well, the tarot is evil or astrology is evil or even, you know, um, forms of Hinduism or whatever, mm-hmm. like Kundalini Yoga, for instance, that that would be evil. I wouldn't have equated those Maybe two. Maybe it would be neutral in your yeah, mind. Yeah, exactly. You can control it. You can do it bad. You can do and it And they good. have some benefits that will actually help you as a person. You know, again, I didn't know how to think it all through. So, Hmm. Hmm. yeah, no, it was a really uh, strange (laughs) journey for me. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. I think what (laughs) I wanted to also talk to you about is there's a group of Christians, they call themselves even Christian witches, who try to integrate some of that into Christianity Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about that right. because they're on the fringes of the charismatic movement. Right. Um, and what are your thoughts about that? And how do you think church, you're a leader of leaders. Right. What would you say to church pastors? They need to know about this. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to be discerning of what has kind of bled or or leaked its way into the church mm-hmm. from the New Age. Sure. Okay. So, for instance, I read a book, gosh, five years ago called The Secret. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I read it because I wanted to understand where the New Age thought is going. Okay. And I've done that periodically where I'd go sure. to whatever the most popular New Age book is at the moment and then thumb through it and kind of get a sense of it because I want to understand what's going on. Now, again, most of those books quote Jesus. So you have to, you know, if you're, if you're not a discerning Christian, you may think, and they even quote other scriptures, but they use them in a, what right. I would say, a perverted way. Right. Okay. So what happens then is that, is that um, you know, you have a believer who understands Jesus, to some extent, maybe they're even truly born again, but they start dabbling. And here's the main point of dabble that I would see, is that Jesus said something very interesting in John 5 and, you know, 19, and I think it's 31 or something, where he says, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own initiative. 
But whatsoever he sees the Father doing, that's what the Son does in like manner. Mm-hmm. And then he says something similar about action. He says the Son of Man, or, uh, about speech. He says the Son of Man only says what he hears the Father saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that's an interesting proposition because there are those in the charismatic world that believe, no, if I have some authorization in the Spirit or some authorization through the general Word of God, I can actually assert my will to achieve an outcome. Right. And see, that's the point I would say we're stepping beyond the clear teaching of Scripture and the clear model of Jesus. When I start using my will or I start using the power of agreement, mm-hmm. because that's what essentially witchcraft is. You guys sure. have to remember that, that witchcraft is the utilization of the power of unity that we see manifested, let's say, in Genesis 11 where the Holy Spirit looks upon the earth and and God says, hey, nothing shall be impossible for them because of their unity. I'm going to confuse their languages. In other words, the scripture affirms the power of unity apart from God's direct blessing. Mm -hmm. And that's what witchcraft is. Witchcraft is the utilization of human will in agreement to produce an outcome. Mm -hmm. Now, some people claim to be white witches. We only do this for good. Right. Okay. But still, the scripture says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. So what is witchcraft? Well, it's anything, either good or bad, that is done in contradiction to God's actual will. In other words, we're not submitted to his will doing what he says. We're actually in a situation now where we're superimposing our will, even our, quote, good will, over God's will in a way to try to produce a result. Right. And that manipulation, I believe, is what the essence of witchcraft. And that, in fact, that's why witches exist in small groups called covens. Mm-hmm. Coven is a short, shortened version of covenant. They're making a covenantal agreement through cursing and through other things to produce an outcome mm-hmm. or through blessing. And that's where we get a little bit towards what I would consider the gray area, even through biblical declarations and things like that. Sure. Where we can try to manipulate reality you know, like San Francisco is an AIDS-free zone. Okay, well, that's a bold thing to say. And obviously, I believe in general, it's in the heart of God. Mm-hmm. But what if somebody gets AIDS after that? Sure. You know. And I, I think part of our problem culturally right now is there's a lot of factors that are going on. One is, you know, Pentecostal charismatics tend to be hermeneutically illiterate. Yeah. We're not reading scripture in its historical context. That's and right. so... You, you don't have a filter to discern these claims about Jesus that are showing up in these New Age books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are magic blind. Most pastors don't have the life experience you did, and so mm-hmm. they don't even know what magic is. Yeah. I, I, I think if I sat down 100 pastors and said, tell me how to do magic, 90 of them, 90% no, not a clue, yeah. Um, and so we're in this age where we have to talk about this as a church, yes, um, and to be discerning on both ends. I want to live a radically Holy Spirit-led lifestyle, but if we say phrases that make sense to atheists, like the supernatural's good, um, God always wants to heal, turning that into New Age culture right. and saying, well, God's healing you through Reiki is just wrong. And right. so what would you do to encourage... <sighs> people out there who need to learn how to discern this stuff. Because yeah. it's not go to the 
New Age bookstore and pick up books. Exactly. And there is an attraction, too, because I think there is, in some cases, a frustration that I prayed for this person. They didn't get healed. Maybe there's other means of producing a healing right. that I can find that aren't necessarily, they would see them as neutral. Sure. Like, let's say, energy manipulation in somebody's body. Like, hey, well, what's wrong with that? Because we have this energy. Well, then why don't we just manipulate it to see if we can produce a healing? So, again, we use human logic to try to understand, not realizing that there is, well, as as Paul said, you know, that when he was confronted by Jesus, he said, I... I ordained you, I've delivered you and sent you to the Gentiles so you can deliver them from the kingdom of darkness unto the dominion of his son. You know, it's like, in other words, two kingdoms at war clearly exist in this world. And if we're not discerning of those or we minimize it in a way to say, well, I don't want to give the enemy glory, therefore I'm not going to talk about the enemy's works. But in fact, if the enemy is a subtle deceiver, And he's going to use even what seems like positive things to draw you into a degree of deception. I don't put it past the enemy to do any of that. So it's really essential, first of all, that I I believe we we are grounded in the Word of God. And and this is different than theology or different than apologetics. In other words, I, I... Gosh, about 30 years ago, I just determined that I was going to read the Bible through every year. Right. Because I want the whole Word of God, and I want it, I want to revisit it every, you know, it's like I, obviously, you know, it's it's not in-depth study, but it's, you know, 15 minutes a day where you're really consuming God's Word again and again and again and again and again, and it provides this incredible balanced perspective of the nature, the beauty of God, but also the nature of the demonic and what that's all about and how to discern the difference. And then the, what is godly, what is demonic, what is human? And there, there's a human dimension as well that we need to understand. So in all of this, that would be foundational. Secondly, I think some basic theological training. I don't think we need to understand the, you know, we don't need to read Greek and Hebrew, but we need to understand how to get the information we need from a theological perspective. And again, you have to remember theology is man's best effort to organize scripture sure. into structures that will actually help us believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, And then the final thing is I think we do need to understand from a philosophical perspective how truth intersects with where the world's at. And I believe this is probably the biggest mistake that the church has made in general, is right now we're in a season where the church is probably less influential than it's been in 500 years in current culture. I mean, we're probably in a season where where secularism has dominated, where basically New Age thought has dominated, where, uh, you know, critical theory has dominated, and uh, postmodern thinking. I mean, we're in, a, we're in a very dangerous moment in human evolution right now. And so I, I really believe it's time for us to begin to marshal our thought leaders and be able to really put together the, the dynamics to be able to address each of these issues. Right. And I want to recommend uh, to our audience, there's great books out there. There's The New Age by Rhodes. Randy Clark wrote a book called Healing Energy, Whose Energy Is It? Um, Walter Martin did a great stuff on Kingdom of the Cult. And so if if you're a pastor, you have 100 people in your congregation, I'm going to bet one or two or three are struggling on this area, especially in charismatic world. With the rise of those who are calling themselves Christian witches. And so we need to stand up against this. We don't want to, you know, be someone that sees a demon under every bush or not tell kids to watch cartoons. Um, But we do want to be 
critically thinking yes. about this and yeah. to speak out what needs to be spoken out. Yeah. And this is really the the challenge is, is that almost every TV show, or at least 50% sure. of them are focused on supernatural dynamics. Sure. And there's no clear understanding of what is godly supernatural and what is ungodly supernatural. In other words, there is a realm that exists, and the scripture talks about it in detail. There's no mistaking the fact that there are demonic forces at work in the universe, in the unseen realm. And so we have to apply a little bit more clarity. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I think uh, the body of Christ needs to up its game. I would also add this, if you want to see the power of God Repent of your sins and go and do the stuff. Mm -hmm. Pray for the sick, yeah. dial down, and focus on Christ. One of the dangers is we fall in love with the supernatural instead of Jesus. Yes. And I I am a revivalist in my heart. I want to see revival. Mm -hmm. um, but there's this pull, right. granted, into just uh, all I want to see supernatural. It's easier. Right. There's not the dying to myself part. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to contend for real revival at mm -hmm. the same time and not let all this, the occults coming in the church become our focus. It's how do I become such a leader that my life is marked by signs and wonders and Absolutely. the character of Christ? Right. Well, again, if you study the Azusa Street outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you have to understand they weren't seeking the gifts of the Spirit. They were seeking holiness, Christ-likeness. Right. That was just like their absolute passion was to be like Jesus. And God answered by giving them some amazing signs and wonders. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that the pursuit of signs and wonders as something unto itself, I think, is one of the open doors the enemy can use. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I got to meet uh, John Wimber early on in the early 80s. And uh, he was traveling with Lonnie Frisbee. I got to see some initial miracles that were transformational. And as a result, we ended up over a series of conferences, joining the Vineyard Movement, starting a Vineyard Church. We saw tremendous signs and wonders, healings of all kinds, people set free from demonic spirits. I mean, we've, we've been immersed in that stuff. I believe in it. I, I want to see more of it honestly, but I also believe that we have, I don't want to present a cautionary note that would keep us away from biblical signs and wonders. Right. On the other hand, I do want to make sure that when people start to err, that there's people there that can help them back on, on the right path. Right. Because if you've been transformed by Christ, you don't want the other stuff. Exactly. And it's easy yeah. for naive people to get lost and the devil is so deceptive, he he'll keep you on that path. That's and right. Well, one of the one of the you know recent things is a lot of Christian leaders using the secret or the law of attraction mm -hmm. as a as a framework through which to discern scripture. Yeah. And and so what we're talking about though, if you're not familiar with this, is basically a pretty typical New Age thought, which is that you know, thought waves are at a frequency. If we can tune our frequency towards positive things, we can attract positive things to ourselves. And, and, and again, see, at that moment, it's all about you and the positive thoughts. It's not about Jesus. Right. And, and, and obviously, there are scriptures that seem to indicate, you know, if any th two of you touch, agree as touching anything, it shall be done for you. Or, you know, if, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask what you will, it will be done for you. In other words, or you'll spit, say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast in. in other words, there's a, there's a number of scriptures that if they're taken out of context 
can seem to validate this idea of the law of attraction, but do we have any business? Is, is the Bible insufficient to the extent that we need to go outside of biblical language and biblical concept to try to find supernatural confirmation mm -hmm. in the worldly setting? Yeah. yeah. This is dangerous. So, Michael, talk to us as leaders about the need to be passionate for God and to repent and to radically pursue Christ? Gosh. Well, you know, again, I've been following Jesus for 45 years. Um, it's mostly been awesome. We've come under some very difficult trials and tribulations over the years. Um, we have seven ch children that we raised in the, on the mission field of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that we're on the verge of what could be the greatest outpouring in human history. I believe that there is coming a day where God is going to move and there will be salvation across the board. But if we don't have our clarity in terms of scripture mm -hmm. and in terms of what we truly hold and believe, I think we could make a mess of this coming uh, mm -hmm. revival. Now, let me just say this, though, too, that I am a revivalist as well. Mm -hmm. I long to see the power of God poured out. I long to see the church. You know, Scripture says that judgment will begin at the house of God. I believe, you know, Second uh, Chronicles 14, 7, 14, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. I believe that. I believe that at the, at the, at the nexus or at the, at the opening of every single revival, there's been a season of repentance. I believe that before Jesus Jesus comes, John the Baptist visits first, always, mm -hmm. okay? Whether it's Elijah, literally in the Old Testament, whether it's John the Baptist in the time of Jesus, or every single revival, there's been a season of a John the Baptist emphasis that precedes a move of God. So as a pastor, as a leader, I would just encourage you not to sell out to, first of all, a, a gospel light, mm -hmm. you know, to a felt need gospel that doesn't address the true problem of human sin, mm -hmm. because ultimately uh, that's real. The second thing is, is we have to understand that it's the goodness of God that leads somebody to repentance. And so therefore the revelation of the beauty of Jesus, I believe is central to every single transformation in our hearts. We love because he first loved us. And when, when Jesus is rebuking the church of Ephesus saying, you've left your first love, I believe he's referring to that exactly. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're not walking in the beauty of God's love in your own life, and therefore you're now incapable of loving others in a powerful way. I believe that is real and true. Um, I believe the preparation for what God's about to do requires, first of all, a recommitment to Scripture, a recommitment to the work of the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out, to work within us, to will and to do of His good pleasure, and then a recommitment to the fellowship of the saints that keeps us in accountable interaction with one another that produces the kinds of results of group holiness, personal holiness, and then also personal dedication to Jesus. Amen. So, I mean, I just feel like this is, this is the, the word of the moment in a sense. And I would add to this, if you're hungry for this, you have to internalize the Word of God and fight your battles daily. Mm -hmm. um, when you're depressed to go, I'm a child of God, to um, f set your mind on heaven, on the joy of your master when yeah. you overcome. And so 
you have to prepare yourself. Sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us as just something he passively does. And uh, rather than he's spoken his word and we take baby steps to align with it and we cry out when we fail, like we need more of your grace and he will supply it. And we have the gifts of the spirit. We have the fruit of the spirit. Amen. And obviously, you know, I've seen so many people fail because they put too much emphasis on the gifts, not enough on the fruit. And we have to remember the final fruit that's listed there in the nine fruits of the Spirit is self-control, self-government, which to me is more than just saying no to sin. It's really the application of my life to pursue Jesus in the fullness of who I am. It's really, in a sense, that, that self-discipline or building a lifestyle culture that continually refreshes my, my passion and my love for Jesus. And that's really where it is, and, and love for his word. And so I feel like that's where so many pastors, I think, are so inundated with so many difficulties and challenges and the tyranny of the urgent and all of that, that, that we have difficulty standing back far enough to really develop a proactive leadership style where we're really moving the church to where it needs to be and not just reacting to the challenges of the moment. So I want to encourage you as a leader, please, you know, make sure you have good, solid prayer time. Make sure you have accountability in your life. Make sure there's somebody in your life or two or three people that can pull your plug. Make sure you're being honest. Even if you're sinning, even if you're involved in some failure, be honest about it. Because right now, you know, you see these different major leaders of God being exposed in sin. What a terrible, terrible mm-hmm. blight in the body of Christ that we should have, you know, people who started out with the best of intentions, but because they didn't manage their lifestyles, now falling into major sin. It's, it's a tragedy. Well, Michael, is there anything else you would like to share as a concluding thought? Yeah. Probably the concluding thought I want to talk about is, you know, I've had the privilege of being part of three major waves of the Holy Spirit. First in the Wimber era, actually probably first in the in the Jesus movement, where we saw some amazing stuff happen in the in the mid-70s that really was phenomenal. Okay. Then about ten years later, John Wimber in and his whole, you know, work he did at Fuller Seminary and then beyond that in the MC five ten course and then beyond that in terms of all the dimensions. Um amazing, amazing work of the Holy Spirit during that time. Then about ten years later, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Toronto. And it got a little messy and there was some controversy related to it, but there was also literally Four million people that visited the building got touched by God. The revival spread around the world. New movements were launched. Hundreds and hundreds of new churches were planted. Thousands of souls were saved. I mean, you know, in spite of the mess, there was a ton of good stuff. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit later, in in the later 2000s, we went through another major season of revival in San Francisco where we had night after night, 275 nights with incredible healings, deliverances, and so forth. Okay, I love the work of the Holy Spirit, and and I really want to encourage you to do that. And I also want you to know that even as we're talking about the New Age, as we're talking about some of these dynamics, there's always going to be a little bit of mess. And, and, you know, there was a season where I pulled back because it was too messy, and I felt like I did grieve the Holy Spirit. I would rather allow for some of the mess and clean it up than 
create an, an environment that's so antiseptic that God never feels permission to show up. So I just want to encourage you, if you're somebody who loves the presence of God, somebody who desires the Holy Spirit, don't let this talk about New Age stuff turn you off, and don't let even the messes that need to be corrected. I'm talking about human beings, let's say, manifesting physically or something in a way that you don't think is God, but, but they're doing it. How do you deal with that? Those are real issues. I mean, literally, if you look at Scripture and you read between the lines, mm-hmm. okay, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they be of God. Uh, what is that? First John chapter four. four. Okay. Or, or, or first Corinthians 14. What were they dealing with? They were dealing with people. They were crazy at the meetings. They were acting weird. They were pro- prophesying, speaking in tongues, blah, blah, blah. They brought correction. They didn't shut it down. So how do we foster a real move of God and yet also at the same time, not allow for the new age garbage to bleed in, nor allow the, uh, the, let's call it the manifestational dynamics, the, the crazy stuff to dominate. But how do we keep it uh, on track so that God's free to move in a powerful way? Yeah. And if you look at the history of revival, it's been cleaned up now, but Jonathan Edwards had strange stuff going on in his meetings. Oh, he did. You know, so did, uh, so did Charles Finney, the Second Great Awakening, and the third, you know, what's called sometimes the Third Great Awakening, certainly Azusa Street, the Charismatic Movement, all of it's had messes. Sure, sure. But... Let's and, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And if you fall into the cessationist camp, um, God still does miracles today, yeah. whether you believe, you know, people have gifts of healing or not. And find those revivalists that match um, cessationism. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had a crazy healing ministry. He had impressions. He wouldn't call them prophecy. And right. that's okay. Follow the Holy Spirit. But uh, what I'm, I'm saying is to my cessationist brothers and sisters is, yep, there's a lot of weird on the charismatic side, and that may turn people to a type of closed cessationism where they stop following the Holy Spirit. Right. Don't be that person. Yeah. Um, and study the great revivalists that are in your denomination's DNA and get a passion to see God move in your generation. Absolutely. I mean, I just think of A.B. Simpson, you know, A.W. Tozer, like people that weren't known to be charismatics, but still operated in a revelation of the supernatural power of God. And so, again, I just want to encourage you as well that that it's not easy to walk with God through revival. And if you look at the history of revival, it's almost always messy and it's almost always criticized by branches of the body of Christ. Let's don't be those people. Amen. Let's walk it out. Well, thank you for coming today, Michael. Oh, it's and my pleasure. I enjoyed it, and we'll see you again next time. God bless you guys.